way. And uh, a couple of you have asked me if I had any stories on Dave that I could tell you. And I do have one. They just sort of come to my mind. I, I feel moved to share it with you. Um, back in 1981 is when I met Dave. And uh, I don't remember if he's the one that posted the card looking for someone to help cut wood or I posted it. But one of us did and gave where we would be. And so we met in, in Greek class and um, we got together and we, we went out looking for uh, lumber to cut and to, to warm our houses. Uh, very, very cold winters up there. And um, so one time Dave called and said, hey, I've got this, I've got this angle on this wood. And, and this lady, uh, she lives real close to us and she said, we can come and we can come and cut all that we want. And it's all kinds of hardwood. And I thought, really? Oh, that's fantastic. And seminary students are on a shoestring budget. So that was gold. That was getting us through the winter. So we show up at this lady's house, and she, uh, she wants us to come in really bad. And we said, well, we're, you know, we're ready to go to work, and we want to cut these trees. And she says, oh, oh I'll, uh, I'll go in and fix some things, and you all go out and, and do your thing. And so we went out and we ran two chainsaws as, about as fast as anybody could and cut down lots and lots and lots of wood and got it all ready, and it was approaching lunchtime. She comes out, and she's waving her arms at us. And uh, so what, what, you know, something wrong? So we go up. She says, no, come in. And I remember I, I was wearing this down jacket that, you know, kind of fluffs up when it gets real cold. And she, I remember her just grabbing that and pulling me into the house and Dave, Dave's standing there, and he, he comes in too, and she's got this table with four plates, four um, uh, coffee cups, and utensils and all that, and she's got some food kind of right in the middle, and I'm looking at Dave, and I'm thinking, I wonder who the number four is. I don't see anybody else here. Maybe Maybe there's somebody here we don't know. Well, we sat down, and I wasn't going to eat anything, I mean... Walking into the house, and the lady just didn't seem like she was all there. And I thought, you know, this is this is what movies are made of. You know, two seminary students, poison. So I decided, I cut my eyes over at Dave, and, he, you know, he did this. And he said, you know, we've been working hard, and we're just kind of, just maybe a cup of coffee. And so she, she brings out this bottle of uh, uh, coffee crystals that looked like it was 15 years old, and she scrapes out out of the bottle and we get our coffee and we're sitting there and I'm just kind of looking at him thinking another fine mess you've got us into and that wasn't the only one but anyway so we we finished the coffee and finished the meal and we said oh we need to get we need to get outside and, and finish up and we walk outside and this truck just I mean just swoops right in and blocks the drive and he gets out of his truck and he says what are you all doing? <laughs> we're, we're, we're cutting timber. We're cutting wood. Who told you? This is my property. Who told you you could cut this wood? And we said, the, the, the lady in the house. Mother! And so, so he runs into the house. And she says, I told these boys they could have all that they could cut. And um, he, was, he was so upset at us. And once again, I looked at your pastor and of, and of all the pastors I've ever met in my entire life, he's definitely one of them. I want you to know that. But uh, anyway, 
we managed to get the wood that we had already cut up. He didn't let us get any more wood that we had fallen or anything like that. And we loaded up his truck and we drove back to our house and split that wood. And I'll never forget that. And now you know a little bit on your pastor. You can ask him about that sometime. Another thing this woman did that just sort of shows you, she said, she says, do you have kids? And I said, yes. And she said, here, we'll take this. And she had a, she had a box of little Debbies that had like three of them in a box of 12. And she literally stuffed it in my coat. And I just couldn't wait to get out of that house. But anyway, I'm so glad to be here. I've known the Heralds for lots and lots of years. Since 1981, where we met, and uh, uh, just wonderful uh, memories and stories. And I pray that there's many more to come. I wanted to join me this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. And um, we're going we're gonna to look at a story, a very interesting story. You may have read it before, you may not, but it's, it's a, a wonderful story that has a lot of meaning for us. And I'd like to ask you, if you will, to stand as I read God's word for us, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 7. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. He came up and he touched the coffin And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up. He began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. Lord, open our eyes this morning and let us see wonderful things from your word. Help us to understand why Luke would include this passage in his gospel. Help us to get into the author's intent of why this story is so significant. Thank you for this time we have this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning's text that we're looking at is is peculiar to Luke's gospel, and he chose it for a reason. If you'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, sometimes we forget why an author writes a particular story, a parable, a lesson, whatever it is he gives. Well, Luke had an underlying purpose for all that his gospel represents. Inasmuch as many has undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. This gospel was written 
to answer the question for Theophilus, who is this Jesus? Most scholars believe that this man, Theophilus, was maybe a Roman uh, centurion, maybe even above that, an officer of sorts. He, he was definitely a man of nobility. And Luke is writing his gospel with Theophilus in mind, giving the account, giving the stories, giving all the things he gives us, uh, a little bit different from Matthew, uh, Mark, and John, and writing as a physician. We even see that coming out in uh, what he writes. But he's definitely writing it to to answer this question. As a matter of fact, in verse 22 of chapter 7, do you remember that John the Baptist was in prison? And John the Baptist got concerned about the fact, that here I am in this in this, uh, in this dungeon of a prison, and I need to know for sure that this Jesus is the one. And remember, he sends two disciples back to Jesus, and here's what he says. He answered them and said, Jesus said to the two that John sent, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Here, this story we're looking at that Luke includes is another evidence to define just exactly who Jesus was. And he was the one, the Messiah, the one promised to come, and all through the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, all the, mostly Isaiah, but many of the prophets talked about this one who would come and would set the captives free and it would even raise the dead. And this is what we're seeing. Now, in looking at this story and looking at these miracles, which in Luke's gospel begins basically in chapter four and they go throughout his book, looking at all these miracles, you have to, you have to answer this question. Just who is Jesus? He was either who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, or he was an imposter with demonic powers, or he was grossly mistaken and the multitudes misreported what they saw and heard. You have to decide this morning for yourself, as each and every person does, who is this Jesus? Now, we're going to look at our text this morning. We're going to begin in verse 11, and we're going to see this story basically in four, maybe five movements. Five things I want to mention. The first thing I want you to see in verse 11 is the mission. Look at what it says. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. This little city of Nain was a day's journey, 25 miles or so, and you could walk a day uh, leaving at sunrise, which people would do to beat the heat, and you, you could make it to Nain easily in a day, some 25 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus has just been. It says he's joining, he's joined with his disciples and a huge crowd of people. Now, whenever I put this story together in my head, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus wakes up at sunrise and he's going to Nain. And he announces to his disciples, we're going to Nain. And all of the people that were camped about, wherever they were, they're going with him. Now, unlike today, we don't have 
uh, places to stop and get, um, I mean, we have places to stop and get food, but think about what do they do for food? Walking all day long, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty. What are they going to do? Where are they going to sleep at the end of this day? By the way, you probably know this, but there was a law in the Old Testament that if you took someone to court, it was illegal for you to try to take their outer garment because that outer garment was a necessary thing for their traveling. They would use it at nighttime for a covering. If it was cool outside, they would use it for a pillow, but it was something they had to have. So the questions that I have about this text is, this whole big group is traveling with Jesus. We're not told this here, and this is just speculation on my part, but I believe that Jesus fed this multitude, and I believe that every time that they were out and together in places, he did that. Not just the two times we have recorded where he fed the 5,000 men, which was 20,000 people, or the 4,000, which is 16,000 or 20,000 people, when you add the women and children and all that. But the end of the Gospel of John says, Jesus did so many miracles, the world wouldn't contain the books if they were all written down. So I can just see this mission of Jesus heading out here. He's not going to leave this crowd hungry. But I think about this word, mission. Jesus always had a mission. And I wonder how mission-minded we are. Many Christians, I believe, are mission-minded. But it's their own mission. And anything after their mission, the leftovers, is what they give to God. Jesus was on this mission. And you can tell when people are on mission. And your pastor can tell when you are on mission as a church. We just recently had our VBS. And I don't know if you all have that here or not, if you've had it. But anyway, this particular VBS was an incredible thing for us. We had so many people stepping up to help that were on mission. We're having this program. We need help. Would you help us? And like typical Baptists, they wait till the very last minute to sign up. But anyway, we had so many workers. And there were the kind of workers that didn't say, well, I wonder when this is going to be over. I'll be glad when this is over, like getting some dental stuff done. You know, I'll be glad when this is over. That type of person is not on mission. But it's the type of person that steps up and serves and feels it a privilege that they can teach these boys and girls about Jesus. That's being on mission. And you can tell when a person is on mission. You can tell by how they give financially to the church, whether it's regular or not. You can tell when they step up, when volunteers are asked for, and and people step up. You can tell that they're on mission. But the sad thing is, many people forget this mission, and they kind of move apart from the mission. Have you heard about the parable of the lighthouse? You're about to. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were, were, where they occur, often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves, and they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. 
Some of those who were saved and other various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station to give of their time and money and effort in support of its work. New boats were bought. New crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as a first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds. They put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boats of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin. Some of them spoke a strange language, and a beautiful new club was considered messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some members insisted that the life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people that were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club and yet another life-saving station founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the people drown. I wonder how many of us are on mission. I wonder how many of us had a conversation this last week with somebody about Jesus about the church, about their eternity. That's being missional in my thinking, where I take opportunities. And when we get off mission, when we lose our focus of what we're supposed to be in the kingdom of God, we miss tons of opportunities. This week, I had last week dropped my brand new Apple iPhone, cracked the screen. I was so happy I had a warranty insurance But the problem is, okay, I've already downloaded everything I have on this phone, this new phone that I've only had for two months. So I have to do the unbearable thing and get on the phone with Apple and get on the phone with AT&T to try to get this new phone set up and how do you download it, how do you get iTunes and make sure all the stuff is on there and then you delete your old phone and send it back and it's all scary to me. I'm a bit illiterate in that area of my life. So I'm on the phone I've already been on the phone for more than 30 minutes with this, this lady. And she said, sir, I'm so sorry. I'm just having trouble getting this thing through. And 
I begin to think, you know, I am so frustrated, but maybe this would be a moment that I could introduce something to her. So I began asking her questions as we talked back and forth. And can you believe this? This young lady had never read the Bible, not one page of it. She said, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because I've really been thinking about reading this book that everybody's talking about. She said, but I wouldn't have any clue where to start. I do. I said, the fourth book in the New Testament, you know, and I went through and sort of explained to her about the Bible and told her the fourth book in the New Testament is a wonderful place to start. The Gospel of John. Just start reading it. Just read it. Read a little bit and write down what you learn, what, what you learn about Jesus. And I didn't preach her a sermon. I didn't try to get her, quote, converted. I simply took a missional opportunity to be on mission. And I believe that as we look at this story, Jesus was always on mission. Do you know what you call it when your body gets off mission? You call it sickness. You do. You call it disease. When your body decides it's not going to do for you what it's supposed to do. The second thing I want you to see in this text, not only was Jesus on mission, but look at the next event, the funeral. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, he, his disciples, and a multitude, and they're going to, the gate of the city, people were um, all the time at the, at the gate of a city. But here he's, he approaches the gate of the city. A dead man was being carried out. Not just any dead man. This was the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Which means she's already carried one of her loved ones out this same gate. And she was there with a sizable crowd from the city. And those that crowd was with her. Now according to Alfred Edersheim, most funerals took place in the early evening. Late afternoon. Typical funerals had at least two hired flute players and one hired wailing woman. And those that had more funds had more of those things. This procession would take place where the widow would be in front of the casket. They would be proceeding out of the city because no one was buried in the city. And she would be leading this procession, the coffin behind her, those pallbearers, coffin bearers on the side carrying this box and behind that the flutes, the wailing women and whoever else was there. It was considered in those days a work of love to go to someone's funeral. It was very significant that a lot of people were here and it shows that this woman was really loved. And it says here that this was the only son and a widow who has now lost the only hope she would ever have of having someone to provide for her. And she is truly left alone. But I want you to notice the next word, in vo- or the first word in verse 12. The word now. As I thought about that word, it wasn't a coincidence that Jesus left Capernaum early in the morning so that he could get to Nain by the time of arriving right at this gate, 
right at this time to meet this coffin, to be able to do what God was calling him to do, and that is to perform this great miracle, to bring glory to God, and to establish his identity. No, it was not a coincidence. I do not believe when you're on mission, you're ever going to have a coincidence. January the 4th of this year, many of you in this church prayed for us. January the 4th of this year, about 8 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call. I was in my truck headed to work, and the, the lady calling me was my wife's running partner, and she was hysterical. I couldn't even understand her words. And I kept asking her, what, Carol, what? She says, Connie has fallen, and she's unresponsive, and you get here quick. So, you know, I tried as my best to get to the location 15 minutes away, just almost made it there in time, and she called me back, and she says, no, the ambulance just picked her up. Go to the hospital emergency room. So I whip the truck around, and I go back to the emergency room, not knowing if she was alive or not. Well, she runs, and she trains for runs, and she's run many, many marathons and half marathons and 10Ks and 5Ks and whatever else Ks there are out there. And so that morning, she was training for another run, her and her friend, Carol. They had left, and they were, you have to understand, they were way out in the boonies, uh, I mean, this girl, Carol, lives way, way out. I couldn't even find, hardly find the place where she lived. When they left that morning, it was a very, very cold morning. They could have turned right, but I think it was Carol who had a knee that was starting to hurt her that morning, and she says, you know what? Let's go left this morning instead of right. Was that a coincidence? No, don't think it was. As they turned left, and they were not far into their run, a car was coming this direction. And Carol, and their, their plan was, whenever a car was approaching, they would get single file, uh, and Carol was in front. She didn't even notice that Connie had fallen behind her. And the car approaching stopped and said, Your friend, she's fallen. And Carol turns around, and there she is, And the car tells us this. He says, I saw her fall. And when she fell, it was almost as if someone laid her down. She had no injuries, cracking her head or elbow or knee or side or whatever. She fell just flat body weight on the asphalt, completely like this. And she fell right at the entrance to a coal mine office. They were right at that time having their staff being re-upped on AEDs and CPR and, and they had the nurses and everybody in the station. And Carol, they immediately started CPR and, and again, uh, to the, the uh, person in the in the car she says please go and get help they go in there and they all rush out to her seven minutes or almost eight minutes before they got to her her heart had stopped she had sudden cardiac arrest only one in ten survived this and 
even less than that, survive it without any lingering problems for their life. So anyway, they all come rushing out. They get the AD all hooked up and ready, and it didn't work. They had a second one. (laughs) They went and got that second one, and that worked. So as I'm thinking about the coincidences, and I'm thinking about what God is a part of, and we don't know why he allowed all these things to happen, but none of them were coincidental. The coal company was with her, the staff, even the main guy that took over and did most of the CPR until the AEDs, he said, I don't even know why I'm still doing here at work. I get off at 7, and it was 8 o'clock, or a little after 8 at that time. Technology was with her, having a second AED. The weather was with her. It was very, very cold, about five degrees. Doctors tell us that preserves organs. Here's another aspect of that. A doctor came to our church about eight months before this. And he met with me later and he says, you know, I'm not sure what drew us to this church, but we really like the church and we want to become a member. And okay, we we love that. And so... This doctor came to the hospital as soon as my wife was taken to the ambulance and this hospital gave the wrong blood test diagnosis and diagnosed her with acute kidney failure. Came back there and told us in the room that her organs were shutting down and that it didn't look very good. All based upon a wrong blood test. This doctor that had joined our church made it to the hospital and said, Tom, you've got to get her out of here. You've got to get her out of here. And I didn't honestly, people, know what to do because at least she was alive. She was breathing with the, with the stuff that they use. I don't know what it's called, the breathing thing. And um, she was at least alive. I couldn't imagine taking her from that uh, emergency care and in another ambulance what if she dies in the ambulance I will forever think that it was my decision and he said I'm going to ride with her in the ambulance and I will give her better care than she's getting now coincidence that he came to our church months before I, I think God is up to something we don't know why he spared us why he even trumped the mistake at the hospital and we got her to a heart hospital that immediately took care of her. She has absolutely no residual effects from this. She went 15 minutes without a heartbeat. She has no brain injury, no memory loss. Well, she may have forgotten how to cook a little bit. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But it's a God thing. But my point here is that It's not coincidence. Did you know that all through the Bible, there are illustrations of this? When Abraham needed a sacrifice as a substitute for Isaac, there in that very neighborhood was a ram caught in a a bush. Later, Abraham's most trusted servant was sent to Mesopotamia in order to bring back from there a wife for Isaac. When he arrived in that strange country, the servant prays that God may direct him before his prayer is even finished. Rebecca is standing right there and he's the lady that she's, he's looking for. 
Gideon needed courage in order to fight the Midianites. So at God's direction, late in the day, he and his servant sneak into the border of the enemy's camp. By the light of the campfires, they were able to see. What they see is frightening. Hostile forces like locusts from multitude. But at that very moment, Gideon hears a Midianite telling his dream to a comrade. The dream about the cake of the barley bread that tumbled into the camp, struck it and overturned it. This gave Gideon confidence and he knew that God was going to use him with those 300 men to defeat them. And then you have Ruth, the Moabitess. She steps out one morning in a field to gather some of the gleanings of the harvest and guess who's riding on his white horse, Boaz, and he looks over and he sees her and he says, Hubba Hubba, who is she? Coincidence? I don't think so. I think God is directing here. Jeremiah is cast into a cistern when he's beginning to sink into the mire. It seems as though his life was over. And then the prophet is rescued by an Ethiopian that arrives just in time. Wow. What about the king's sleepless night? And he gets up and he asks the chronicles to be read to him of the day's events or the month's events. And they read about Mordecai. And Mordecai, because of his testimony, the king would have been assassinated. And the king says, who is this man and what has been done for him? And of course they said, well, he's going to be hanged tomorrow. This turned that whole story completely around. Coincidence? I don't think so. Nows are very important. And I don't know how many you have in your life. I don't know how many uncertainties that arrive in your life. But as I look at this story, this was something divine. So now we move to the third part, the compassionate Christ. And look at what Jesus does. As he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow. The sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, do not weep. This word To feel compassion is a word that describes the inward parts. Remember how you kind of felt when the penguins in sudden death hit that goal? Some of you, maybe? It's, It's a feeling that you feel right here. And that's the expression that Jesus is sharing with us. How he felt when he saw her and he shows this compassion and he says do not weep and he came up and he touched the coffin wow this is a great great miracle it's also something that would declare Jesus unclean for seven days in the book of numbers it it gives all of these particular specifics about that even being in the same room of a person dying you would be declared unclean for seven days and i thought about this and how that jesus touches this coffin and yes it's going to declare him unclean but where would the evidence be (laughs) when this man comes to life and he's living i mean who would incriminate jesus on this there's no way he would So this is a great miracle and no one asked Jesus to do this. There was no faith exchanged in this story. 
He touched that coffin and it says that this young man sat up. And the word here for coffin, a coffin was only used to transport the body to the tomb. Didn't have a lid. And basically the the tomb would be uh, carved out of rock and inside the tomb would be ledges. And so the body would be laid on a particular ledge and a family perhaps would have, a large family would have a large tomb with a lot of ledges. So the scripture says here that he touches this coffin and they stopped. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What's the first thing that happened? It says he sat up and he began to talk. I know what he said. He said three things. The first thing he said was, Mama, Mama, her only son, and he's there, and if he's sitting up this way and his mother is leading the processional, she's looking right at him. He says, Mama. And the second thing he said was, Get me out of this box. And the third thing he said, and I know this is true because he was a man, he said, I'm hungry. I would like a falafel, please. What a story. What a story. Imagine as the people were watching this and taking a look at this. And you know what's, what's even neat about this story? When a, when a body was prepared for burial, it would be completely washed clean. It would be wrapped with cloths around the limbs and the torso. And the nails would be trimmed. The hair would be cut. When this young man woke up, he woke up refreshed. Think about that. God even took care of that detail. What a story. A miracle of miracles here. Jesus raising the dead. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. You know, I'm used to preaching with a clock that I can look at. Um, I guess I could look at my watch, and we're getting close to time. Dave told me to preach till 1230. Is that correct? No, he really didn't say that. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at these verses. And you, he's speaking here to Christians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, this is exactly what happens in true conversion. This is exactly what happens when a person, when the heart is opened, when the, when the person is, is resurrected and converted and sets up and God saves and quickens and prepares for whatever he has for them. Lastly, this morning, as we close this text, there are a couple of different ways to see this very last couple of verses. But I call it the the mistaken identity. Scripture says in verse 16 that fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over Judea and in all the surrounding districts. Let me close with this in Matthew 16 and verse 13. You know that the people were following Jesus because he was feeding them. He was doing the miraculous. And here, once again, Jesus establishes his identity, who he is. Only God can raise the dead. But when they began to identify who he was, they simply called him a great prophet. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am, the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, Herod thought that, and others, Elijah, Elijah raised the dead, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, But Jesus wanted to know just exactly what a true believer would say about him. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the sad part of all of these miracles and things that go through Luke's gospel. Many of the people remained unconverted. Actually, at the end, they rejected Jesus completely. What do you say this morning? Who is this Jesus who healed, who raised the dead here in the city of Nain, who restored this widow's son back to life? Who do you say this Jesus is? And I hope that you have opened your heart. I hope that God has opened your eyes and quickened you to see who he is. And if he has done that, I hope that you have come to him. And I hope that you'll prepare yourself for the baptism I saw that's coming in a couple of weeks. And follow him. Be a true believer, a Christ follower, not a fan, a Christ follower. And answer that question. This is who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this story as we look through the different details about it how it reminds us 
time after time, we didn't think that things would turn out right. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. We need to just trust you, Lord. If you allow something to happen in our lives that we could be able to see the divine hand that we can trust you. That we can know that you are always on mission and that you are calling us to do the very same. And I pray that for maybe someone here this morning. Maybe they've forgotten what mission that they have to be the light, to be the evangelist, to be the person that loves and cares and gives and forgives. May we be the church, Lord, the church that you have called out. Thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Help us now as we think about this. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.